to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live seeks to engage the Christian message in Melbourne. Yet today our show doesn't come from Melbourne. Instead, I'm in the UK on a Logos Live tour. So today's episode's a little bit like Logos pre-recorded, but nonetheless, I'm still sure you enjoy what we have in store. And today we're in for a bit of a treat. My guest today is biblical scholar and theologian Professor Richard Borkum. Richard has a wide range of academic interests, ranging from the theology of Jürgen Moltmann, Christology, eschatology, the New Testament books of Revelation, James, 2 Peter and Jude, Jewish and Christian apocalyptic literature, the New Testament Apocrypha, the relatives of Jesus, the early Jerusalem church, the Bible and contemporary issues, and biblical and theological approaches to environmental issues. It's a great pleasure we can welcome today Richard Borkum. Welcome. Thank you. Well, that's uh, quite a uh, wide range of interests you have there. How do you fit it all in? I think I'm just interested in everything. You know, I've, <laughs> I've never been content to read a book someone else has read and say, oh, yes, that's, that's good. I always want to go into it myself and you know, form my own conclusions and the evidence. Yes. Um, so anything um, in particular that you're spending time on at the moment? Well, I'm working on uh, the geography of the area around the Sea of Galilee in relation to the Gospels. Uh, the fishing industry on the Sea of Galilee, which obviously relates to the Gospels because several of the disciples were fishermen. And some of the excavations in that area, particularly excavations at Magdala, mm-hmm. it's a major town on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where Mary Magdalene came from. It's the only time it's mentioned in the Gospels. And uh, dominated the fishing industry on the lake. Very important place, only seven miles south of Capernaum, which Jesus made his base in the area. And uh, it's an ongoing excavation. They're finding lots of interesting things like fishermen's houses, fish factories where they sorted and processed the fish, a mm-hmm. uh, first century synagogue, lots of very new archaeological discovery, which is really very relevant to the Gospels. What light do they cast on the Gospels? Well, for example, we have fishermen's houses. It's the first time we have actually first century fishermen's houses that have not been subsequently modified as at Capernaum. Uh, So we can see the sort of houses that James and John, Peter and Andrew, the disciples of Jesus, would have lived in. Um, There's a first century synagogue. It's actually the only Galilean synagogue from before AD 70, which they've excavated. Um, So that's quite exciting. Mm. Uh, The fish factories, this is what they did with the fish. Probably if Andrew and Peter caught more fish than they could supply the local market with immediately. They would sell it to the factories in Magdala, which would sort it and make fish sauce and export it all mm. over the place. Does it still smell? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think after you know nearly 2,000 years, the, 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 the fish smell has somewhat dissipated. I've got a wide range of interests. Is there a common theme in your research? I don't think there is. I mean, I've had an interest in the Bible, obviously, all the way through. There are many different uh, aspects of of biblical studies. Um, I've always been interested in how the Bible relates to our contemporary context and and, and contemporary issues. So that's a thread that runs through some of my work. Um, But I I was also trained as a historian. I did a a history degree in Cambridge. I did a PhD within the history faculty in Cambridge. So there was a good deal of theology in it. Um, So I'm someone who's trained in historical method mm. in a way that most New Testament scholars are not. And, and I, I, I've always had an interest in, in history for its own sake, I think. I think I'm really interested in history. Mm. And sometimes I think, rather than simply being interested in the biblical text and the historical things that are relevant to it, sometimes you have to be a bit more distanced 
from the text and be interested in all sorts of things, which then prove relevant to the text. Mm. But you don't always know what they're going to be if you're too focused on the text merely. Mm. So my interest in the historical context of, of the New Testament, uh, and particularly the Jewish context, the Jewish literature of the period, all those kinds of things come together. So I suppose reading the text in its historical context and also reading the text in its contemporary context, both of those things I think are important. Mm. Yes. So this would explain your interest in the historical Jesus in particular, just mm-hmm. you, you like history, yes. understanding yes. what happened. Yes. And but I also think that the historical Jesus is, is vital for faith. Mm. You know, um, I think Christians know Jesus from the Gospels. Mm. Uh, we know Jesus as a living presence, but we know what Jesus is like from the Gospels. And... I think we need some assurance that Jesus of the Gospels is, is the real Jesus. Um, I prefer to say the real Jesus rather than the historical Jesus, actually, you know, because the historical Jesus tends to mean Jesus reconstructed by historians kind of behind the text of the Gospels, mm. as though the Gospels are not actually a very good guide and one needs a historian to reconstruct a, a Jesus who's different from the Jesus of the Gospels. Mm. I'm more interested in adducing reasons why we can read the Gospels themselves with confidence that it's the real Jesus we're, we're finding there. Mm. Well, because this is a major debate in historical or real Jesus studies yes. for a, a long time about separating the, you know, the Christ of faith with the Christ of history. I prefer, rather than the terms Jesus of history and Christ of faith, you know, those two terms have been used as a sort of dichotomy. Yes. Um, I prefer to use the term the Jesus of testimony. Because I think the Jesus we have in the Gospels is the Jesus as those who knew him and witnessed the events, described him and the events. Um, Now, you can never have a bare narrative with no interpretation. Mm. Even while you're remembering an event that you're present at, you're actually interpreting it because Mm. your brain is selecting the things you remember. Mm. There's interpretation in all historical accounts uh, the interpretation in all the everyday life uh, where we tell other people something mm. that we've experienced. So we can't get back to a Jesus without interpretation, mm. who would actually not be a very interesting Jesus anyway if we just knew that he, he walked from Capernaum to Magdala, you know. <laughs> That's right, on the um, left-hand side of the road. Bare facts, yeah. bare facts are not interesting in themselves. You know, you need, you need ways of putting the facts together and talking mm. about the interest they have for us. And the people who witnessed Jesus' life and ministry, resurrection, um, those people, of course, felt that they'd been present at the most important thing they had ever been present at and the mm. most important thing that happened in the world. So they're, they're convinced of something very important which they wish to communicate to other people. So it's their testimony. I think testimony is a good word because mm. it's a kind of historical category. Testimony is what eyewitnesses provide for us. Um, but it's also a kind of a theological category because um, it it, it uh, acknowledges the role of interpretation. Yeah. But what I want to insist on is it's the interpretation of those who witness the events. Yeah. Um, uh, it's not the interpretation of other people far removed yeah. by an oral tradition, you know, that passed from hand to hand, mouth to mouth for uh, a long period. Yeah. Um, and the key thing being, I think, you know, this is one key to the way I look at the Gospels, is 
we know that the eyewitnesses, a whole lot of people, you know, some, some of the famous people in the Gospels, the Twelve Apostles and so on, but a lot of other people too that we don't know much about, uh, lots of eyewitnesses. These people were around in the early church. They didn't just disappear. Yes, um, which is uh, some scholarship would assume that the, as soon as Jesus died and was resurrected, then the people who witnessed it just disappeared from the face of the earth. Exactly. As well. so, so if, for example, you were the evangelist Luke mm. writing, writing a biography of Jesus, which I think his gospel is, and Luke had not been an eyewitness himself, but what would you do? You would go and find the eyewitnesses. Mm. You, know, you would interview them, which was good historical method in the ancient world. And uh, you would not simply depend on some tradition that had been passed down to you. Mm. Why should you do that when the eyewitnesses are available? They're still alive, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, we'll talk a bit more about that in just a second, but maybe just going back to your point about that history requires interpretation, or that yes. the Gospels require interpretation. But that's yes. true of history in general, isn't it? Of course, it? yes. Because I think people will sometimes want a distant divorced person from any sort of sense of bias or interest in the topic area to, yes. that's, a, that's the only form of reliable history yes. but that's kind of, but there's no one who's divorced or uninterested in history because that's why you write about it in the first place Indeed, all history has interpretation um, we can't get away from that um, but historians of the ancient world, people who wrote history in the ancient world um, were most interested in having the testimony of people who had been involved in the events, so mm. you get a kind of inside view of the events um, and if the contrast is between that and someone who just happened to be there and wasn't very interested and observed yeah. what happened. This is the problem of eyewitness testimony in court, by the way, which, you know, um, people are sometimes rather suspicious of eyewitness testimony nowadays yeah. because it's been proved how unreliable it can be in yeah. court. But very often that's um, a problem of asking someone to tell you details about a situation they happened to be present at, but mm. weren't interested in. Mm. So they you're walking home from the, the shops, and then something happened out of the corner of your eye. Tell us what happened about that thing that you weren't particularly interested in. Yes, yes. And, what, and that's what car was it? What, yeah, what, what right. did the man look like? You know, you weren't interested. I was in just thing. checking my phone. <laughs> I, was exactly. checking, I was trying to go home, and I, I don't recall. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas an event that has an effect on you, an mm. event that engages you emotionally, those are the events you remember well. Mm. Um, so, for example, people tend to remember their wedding days fairly exactly. clearly. Yes, yes, naturally. And psychologists actually, you know, from experimental data, um, you can actually compile a list of the kinds of things that assist memory, um, the kinds of things you're likely to remember well. I mean, one of the key things, of course, is that if you tell the story frequently, mm. it stays alive in your memory. Mm. If you forget about something and then 40 years later you're trying to dredge it out of your memory, that's much more difficult to do. If you experience something that's really important, you want to tell everybody, um, and over the years you... The other thing, if, if you look at your own experience of these things you can, uh, and think about it, what actually happens is that very quickly when, when you're first telling a story, it assumes a kind of fixed form in your mind and you repeat it in that form. So there are various ways in which memory can be stable the various ways in which memory can be unstable. But I think the, the factors making for stability actually work rather well mm. in the case of the kinds of literature the Gospels are. Mm. Well, let's talk a bit more about the Gospels. Mm. So there's a lot of debate about what the nature of the Gospels are. Some claim that they're ancient fiction. They can't be trusted for historical accuracy. They bear no relationship to what actually happened in the real world. Mm -hmm. How do you react to that? One very important development in Gospel scholarship 
is about the literary genre of the Gospels. And I think probably a majority of scholars would now say, and this has been a, a growing consensus over the last couple of decades, I would say, that the Gospels are ancient biographies. In other words, people who first read or heard the Gospels read would have put them into that category of literature. You know, Whenever you read something, you're unconsciously knowing what sort of literature it is. Yeah. The way you read it depends on what sort of literature you identify with, whether it's a, a historical account, whether it's a novel, whether it's a travelogue or whatever. So the category of ancient biography, um, which of course is not necessarily the same kind of thing as a modern biography, mm. um, but people wrote biographies in the ancient world. And the first hearers would also know that this is a biography written within living memory. In other words, written while there were still people alive who had witnessed the events. Mm. And that means they would expect it to be based on eyewitness testimony. So there are certain expectations, I think, that, that this literature would arouse. And I certainly don't think anybody in the ancient world would have, would have read this and thought it was a novel. Mm. They would identify it as history. Why would that be? Well, let's take Luke's Gospel, which is the clearest. And Luke has a preface mm. which puts his Gospel in the category of ancient historical writing. Mm. He has a sort of preface that ancient historians wrote to tell you a little bit about their sources, what they're trying to do. Um, the Gospels, of course, are, are very very short documents, and we, we don't have that kind of explanation in the case of the others. Um, the case of John's Gospel actually is interesting because that's the one that most people would regard as the unreliable Gospel. Yes. If, if one of them is less reliable, mm. usually be John that people think has sort of elaborated the stories about Jesus with a great deal of fiction or imagination. I think John's Gospel would actually have looked to a contemporary reader more like the best sort of history right. than the others. Because some of the things people expected in really good history was precision about dates, chronology, mm. and precision about geography. Right. And if you read John's Gospel carefully, it has those two sorts of precision um, in John's Gospel, we always know where Jesus is, often very precisely. Mm. And you know within a few months what uh, part of his life you're in because John has these Jewish festivals that mark passage of time through mm. the Gospels. So that kind of historical, chronological, geographical precision, I think people would have taken as a, a mark of historical biography. Mm. And you mentioned that... Ancient biographies are different to modern biographies. How, how are they different? Modern biographies, of course, are very often interested in the psychology of their subject. The ancients weren't only interested in psychology. They were interested in moral qualities, so they would characterise their main figure by moral qualities or simply by telling a lot of stories about that person right. that illustrate what sort of person they were. One aspect of ancient biographies is that they are usually picking a character whom they present as a model for life or a guide to life, something very directly relevant to their readers. If you use the word propaganda in mm. a neutral sense, not in a bad sense, mm. in other words, you're writing something that means to convey an, uh, a message. Yeah. Ancient biographies commonly were conveying some kind of message by telling this person's story. So the idea that the Gospels were written to convey a message 
they clearly were. Mm. They wanted people to um, come to see Jesus as the saviour of the world. Mm. Is quite consistent with the idea of an ancient biography. Mm. Um, so it's the correct genre to use it, to, it, to communicate it, that it, message. Exactly. And this is because scholars used to say, well, the Gospels are conveying the Christian message, therefore they're not biography. That's a false dichotomy. Mm. It wouldn't have made sense in terms of how ancient people thought of biography. Mm. But very easily convey the Christian message by writing a biography. Whereas the opposite is actually the case. If you wanted to convey the Christian message, you would actually use the biography. Of course, because the Christian message was about this man who had lived in first century Palestine and done all these things. You know, the story of Jesus is a key part of the message. Now, in your book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, you make the controversial claim that the Gospels are eyewitness testimony. So how can you make that claim? Let me take Mark's Gospel as an illustration. From what I've just said about Contemporary biography, people who were reading or hearing the gospel read would be expecting it to be based on eyewitness testimony. I mean, that that reader expectation is very important because then you might be looking out for indications of who the eyewitnesses were. And very quickly in Mark's narrative, you would come across Jesus' call of the two disciples, Peter and Andrew, fishermen. And you might well notice that Peter is the first disciple of Jesus to be named in the Gospel and to be named rather unnecessarily, it may seem, emphatically Mm. at that point. Um, You read through the Gospel, Peter is much the most commonly mentioned person by name other than Jesus himself. He's also the last disciple to be mentioned by name in in the Gospel. So you've got a kind of pattern in which Peter seems to be the the principal participant in the events. He's very prominent. Very prominent. The interesting feature of that, however, is that there's one point in the Gospel where Peter disappears from the narrative. Because when Peter denies Jesus at the time of Jesus' trial, he drops out of the narrative. So then you have these key events of the Gospel where Jesus is crucified, buried, and people go to the empty tomb and find his body gone. Um... Peter's not a witness to those things in Mark's Gospel, who is. And you see that Mark in those narratives makes it very plain that there are a group of women disciples of Jesus about whom Mark keeps saying that they saw, they observed, they looked. He portrays them as eyewitnesses. They hardly do anything else, actually. They just see and observe. And they observe the key moments when Jesus died, when he was laid in the tomb, and they go to the tomb on on the Sunday morning and find that Jesus' body is not there. So precisely at the point, the key point in the narrative actually, where the principal eyewitness, Peter, is not there, Mark makes it very clear who are the eyewitnesses. So I, I think the combination of Peter being dominant throughout the narrative, apart from that section, and Mark very clearly providing, as it were, substitute eyewitnesses for that section... They, they, the, those two things confirm each other, I think, as making a, a good case for those are the people who would be recognised as the eyewitnesses mm. in Mark's Gospel. Um, in addition, I think, they might well pick up the names that are used occasionally just in one story within the Gospel, such as the healing of the blind beggar Bartimaeus. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark mentions his name. Mark has a lot of people being healed by Jesus and doesn't give us their names. Uh, in this case, he gives us Bartimaeus' name. And you know at the end of the story about Bartimaeus that 
he becomes a disciple of Jesus. Mm, yeah. So Mark certainly implies, I think, that Bartimaeus became a Christian believer. Um, he was doubtless a member of the, the early Jerusalem church. And I think Bartimaeus would have gone around telling his own story. And by preserving the name of Bartimaeus within the story as he tells it, I think Mark is indicating the story came from Bartimaeus himself. And so his name is, as it were, stuck to his story. A little bit like a footnote, perhaps. Yeah, and I sometimes say to people, go back to the story and read it as if you are Bartimaeus. Mm. And you will see how much it's written from Bartimaeus's perspective. As part of Logos Live, we do re- reflect on a part of the Bible, the Logos, which resonates with the experience of our particular guest. We looked at that passage in uh, Mark chapter 10, which does mention Bartimaeus. Mark 10, 46 and 47, it says, Then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples together, with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then we could also consider perhaps then Luke 18, where the same story is recorded. Luke 18, 35 to 38, it says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So it's the same story recorded slightly differently. Luke doesn't mention Bartimaeus, but Mark does. Why is that? It may well be simply that Luke didn't expect his hearers to have heard of Bartimaeus. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess that Bartimaeus was a well-known figure in the Jerusalem church. Um, Luke is writing later than Mark, of course. Um, Maybe Bartimaeus' name had just faded, and uh, Luke doesn't think it would add anything to his narrative. He was also his narrative is slightly compressed and, as well. And Luke, Luke is always abbreviating Mark's narrative mm. because he wants to get a lot more stuff into his gospel. He wants to have a lot of stuff from Mark, but a lot of other stuff too. So he always abbreviates Mark's narrative. There are other cases, of course, where Luke has names um, that are peculiar to Luke's gospel. Mm. I mean, the story of the walk to Emmaus is an interesting one because. Luke tells the story of the two disciples only after, one's named. after the resurrection, um, and only one of them is named, who's, who's named Cleopas. Mm. But it's a bit odd. Luke just says one of them was called Cleopas. But if, if you think again that story came to Luke from Cleopas, and his name remains stuck to it, mm. um, and this is a story that only, only Luke has, mm. so Luke may be particularly concerned to indicate where he got that story from. Mm. So... In other cases, and other cases, is Zacchaeus the tax collector, who's only in Luke, and Luke mentions his name. Mm. So what does it change if the Gospels were eyewitness testimony? I think it can give us a much greater confidence that we have the real Jesus in these Gospels. As I said, of course, there is an element of interpretation in all testimony. Um, in, in all history. In all history. And from that point of view, of course, it is interesting that we have four different Gospels, and they do give us, as it were, different angles on Jesus. There are different collections of material, but the different Gospel writers uh, obviously have different interests in Jesus, different kinds of things they're emphasising. Um, so we actually have a, a variety um, of eyewitness testimony preserved for us in the texts. Um, I think that's, that's a great advantage, mm. um, because we're not just relying on what Peter said, we're relying on what quite a number of the eyewitnesses must have fed into the various Gospels and, and given us different material. Well, that help account sometimes for some of the differences between the Gospels? So sometimes they record a similar story with slightly different yes. emphases. Would that explain some I, of the differences? I, I think, for example, 
the visit of the women to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, um, uh, which is in all four Gospels, and with some quite notable differences. The, mm. the, the gist of the story is clearly the same, mm. but there are significant differences. I think it's quite likely that those four narratives go back to different women among the group of people who went to the tomb, um, and people remember things differently. So the differences in detail, but it doesn't seem to be the differences in detail are a problem no. in a case like this. And it, it is true that study of memory shows that we often remember the gist of a story, the main outline, the main points, and we do vary the details. I mean, one other feature of ancient historical writing, I think, which is relevant, is that ancient historians were storytellers. Not all modern academic historians are. Uh, ancient historians wanted to, they had to keep their audience, they wanted their readers, they told good stories, and actually all the gospel writers are very good storytellers, mm. especially Mark and John, in fact. They tell stories beautifully. But they also allowed, therefore, a certain degree of freedom in telling the story. And I don't think it would actually have bothered readers in the ancient world to compare the telling of a story in one gospel and another and find varied detail. Mm. They were used to that, they expected it. They didn't regard it as a fault on the part of the storyteller. It's, it's a natural variation of detail. What they cared about, of course, was that the main point of the story, the gist, uh, was the same in, mm. in every case. And in the case of the gist of the story, well, at a very basic level, is completely the same across yes. all the Gospels. Jesus yes. came, he taught, oh, yes, he had influence, indeed. he gathered a bunch of disciples, he died, and he was raised to life. Yes. Um, before I left Australia, I mentioned that I was meeting you, and I got a couple of questions from some listeners. So one of them relates to miracles, and it asks, are all the miracles and events in the Gospels recorded as historical events, or are some merely literary devices, or even, dare I say it, propaganda? I'm quite sure that people would have read the Gospels as historical accounts. Yep. So that they wouldn't, as it were, put miracles in some different category from the other events in the Gospels. Of course, you can have good or bad history, so people wouldn't necessarily swallow anything they were told was history. They would want uh, good grounds for believing it. But I don't think there's actually any reason to distinguish miracles from other events in, in, in the way that we're trying to evaluate the Gospels. From a historical perspective. From, from a historical perspective. Of course, the problems arise from a modern world view. You know, we may have difficulty mm. uh, believing in the miracle stories. Uh, if you're quite convinced that miracles cannot happen, then, of course, you're going to have trouble with the text. But that's a modern perspective. Yes. People in the ancient world would certainly have regarded a miracle as a remarkable event, they weren't run-of-the-mill everyday events. No, that's why they're called miracles, basically. Exactly. (laughs) The point of them in the Gospels is precisely that they attract everyone's attention, people are astounded by them. Um, But I don't think people would have said, ah, now we've got to a bit of the Gospel that is not historical. Mm. They wouldn't have made that distinction. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time today, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure. Let me leave you with the Logos for the day about blind Bartimaeus. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I look forward to you joining us next time.